This is lecture number seven of the Yogas of the Bhagavad Gita course, Meditation Instruction, by Joseph Goldstein at the Naropa Institute on July 5th, 1974. Today we'll start with um, the walking again. We'll do 10, 10 or 15 minutes of the walking. Be very aware of all the intentions which precede the act. You might think of intention a help in, in becoming mindful of them. Think of it in terms of a signal, okay? Sometimes it's not a thought. It's not necessarily a sentence in the mind which says, I'm going to do this, but rather just some kind of signal which indicates the action to come. So don't be looking for anything necessarily concrete and tangible. But just that movement of the mind. No, um, you should notice that intention or signal for radical changes of posture. For example, from sitting to standing, there's an intention. Or even from the intention to unfold the legs, right? There's an intention to move this leg and an intention to move that. When you're standing, then there will be an intention to begin walking. Just that signal in the mind that's going to start you walking, right? That should be noticed. Once you're walking, you can, you can ignore it because it's not predominant. In the turning, though, that's an interesting time. The foot does not turn by itself, right? There's, there's going to be some kind of mental movement which is the cause of the foot turning, right? Try and be aware of that, of that intention. So when you get to a corner and there's going to be a turning, try and note the intention to turn, and then the movement. Any questions about the walking? It will be done in the same way we have done it. When thoughts come, they should be noticed, right? Just aware of the fact that at that moment the mind is thinking, and then again back to the walking. When you're doing it by yourself, if, if a very strong thought sequence comes, you should stop walking, right? And make the thought the object, and then when it disappears, continue. In this situation, it would be a little difficult because people would be bumping into one another. So here, just be aware of the fact that you're thinking and then put the mindfulness back onto the walking movement. It's very interesting when the mindfulness is really sharp, when it's very strong, and you're walking, very mindfully, and a thought comes, automatically the body stops. Like you, you, you just stop in the walking because you cannot be mindful of two things at one time. And if that factor is strong, and the mind goes to the thought, and the mindfulness is there, the, the walking process is going to stop. But anyway, that will come. It will come out of your practice. Any questions about the walking? Okay, intending to move the legs, moving the legs. Be very slow and very mindful of all the processes. And it's a much, much more silent and concentrated awareness. It's a very helpful practice. A lot of insight develops. And also the, the sitting becomes deeper because you've spent that preceding half hour or so 
in developing one-pointedness and mindfulness. So it's a very good practice to do. Are there any questions about the walking? You can vary the speed. You know, sometimes you can walk faster, sometimes slower. When you walk very slow, you can really experience just a, a lot of the very uh, microscopic processes going on. And just in the lifting, so many things are happening. So at times, it's really good to do it very slowly. At other times, you can, you can walk quicker. And even in one session, like in a half hour or 40 minute walking session, you can vary the speed sometimes. One thing to remember is that it's not an exercise in movement. It's an exercise in mindfulness. Right? You don't want to get into a movement trip. That's, that's something else. You know? What we're doing in the training is to develop the mental factor of mindfulness. So that's what should be predominant. Is it better to walk barefooted or... It doesn't matter. Yeah, you said the movement trip is something entirely different in terms of mindfulness? No, I mean, one could get into a whole dance, you know, making, making the kind of movement the important thing, which is a nice thing to do, but it's not what we're really training ourselves in here. What we're training, the training is in becoming aware, in cultivating that factor of mindfulness. So a very simple, just a simple, easy walking. You could be mindful in, in, a, in a dance, you know, but it's unnecessary for this kind of training. And so. Okay, last time we spoke of the different mental states, which are the hindrances, and becoming mindful of them. Today we're going to do something uh, a bit different and not within not within the framework, really, of mindfulness, but prompted by last night's lecture uh, and slides, which I thought was, was really beautiful, and the kind of feeling generated by it. The cultivation of loving thought is a very, is a very useful factor of mind to develop for the for the practice of insight. When love is highly developed in the mind, the mind gets very, very flexible, very pliable, very soft and gentle and workable, and the awareness and clarity can then be very sharp, very smooth, very, very easy. It's as if the mind has been tempered by this quality of love so that then a very penetrating awareness can be applied. There is a special kind of meditation which deals specifically with the development of loving-kindness, of, of universal love. And it's a very nice thing to incorporate into one's practice, to begin each meditation with five or ten minutes of developing that kind of mind. It sets, it sets one up for then, for then developing a very sharp wisdom with regard to what's happening.
because it makes the mind very open, very receptive. So what we'll do today is just to, to explain a little bit of how to cultivate these loving thoughts. There are two different kinds of practices. One is to use loving-kindness as an object of a concentration meditation. Okay? It's a mantra. You can do mantra and visualization with, with loving-kindness and develop very high states of samadhi. You can go into the jhanas or trances using love as the object. That's, we're not primarily concerned with that, but rather to develop a general kind of loving-kindness, right? The kind of loving thought which just makes the mind so, so gentle and soft and open. And that's done by simply sitting down and repeating certain kinds of phrases. For example, may all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be liberated. May all beings be free of suffering. Whatever words you feel are appropriate to yourself in sending out to all beings everywhere should be repeated three or four of these phrases. You sit down with a very quiet mind, just sending out these loving thoughts, really imagining going out into the universe. Right? May all beings everywhere be happy. May they all be peaceful. May all beings be free of suffering. May all beings be enlightened. Repeating that for five or ten minutes, you really begin to open up. Right? The mind gets very, very open, very full of love. And then after about five or ten minutes of doing this, again, one should just sit quietly and use that, that, that quality of mind which has developed through this practice of love, that very receptive state, very open state, and then practice mindfulness. And you'll find it much easier. You'll find yourself much more open, much more receptive to what it is that's happening moment to moment. It's interesting, the development of loving-kindness involves a concept. That is the concept of other beings. Right, of other persons to whom you're sending out these loving thoughts. In ultimate reality, there's no such thing as person or man or woman. All we are is a collection of elements. Which is why the development of this loving-kindness by itself does not penetrate to that underlying state of wisdom. Because it's dealing with a concept. But it's a very beautiful concept, and a very beautiful state of mind arises from the cultivation of this loving-kindness. So we use it, right? We use that, that kind of meditation to develop the mental factor of love. Love also being not I, and not mine, and not self. It's an impersonal mental factor. But we can develop it, because it has a very wholesome influence on the mind. And then when the mind is suffused with this kind of loving thought, loving vibration, we then balance that, that love or devotional quality with the development of wisdom. Right? We use that space of mind and then, and then develop a very sharp, penetrating insight into the ultimate nature of things. 
So they're a very beautiful complement and necessary complement to one another. Are there any questions? Is this the practice that you did when, is that the particular practice that you did and then you felt really good and you went to your teacher and said that'll pass too? I was doing it as a, a the, more spe the first kind of practice I mentioned as a specific concentration technique involving, involving visualization and, and the, the words. Like what we'll do here is, is a more general kind, just sending out loving thoughts, right? Its purpose is not primarily to reach high states of samadhi, but just to, to make the mind light, right? light and flexible and open. And it's very beautiful because you get established in a very easy relationship with people. When this quality of loving kindness is developed, just with whomever you, with whomever you happen to be, that metta or, or loving kindness is there. You know, wishing happiness for all beings. It's very nice. Are there any questions about it? Okay, we'll sit for about half an hour today, maybe. Do five or ten minutes of just repeating those words, or any words that you choose. Just sending out these thoughts of love. Okay? And after five or ten minutes, then then continue the practice of mindfulness, starting with the breathing and then picking up all the different objects that are happening. Uh, you sit in like a meditation position and, and your leg hurts and you can you intend to move it, you know, be mindful of movement so it doesn't hurt? You can. Sometimes it's good to make the pain the object of the meditation. Uh -huh. Right? And just watch it. Except that we get over our fear of pain. You know. It's just a flow of unpleasant sensation. So if we're mindful of it with a relaxed mind, actually pain is a good object because it's very strong and the mind doesn't wander. You know? But when it gets unbearable, that's when you should note the intention to move and the moving. You might, it might be easier if, if you sat on a cushion. Is the loving kindness meditation, should you use just May all beings be happy or should you use several ones? Use three or four. Like may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings be enlightened or free of suffering. Whatever, you know, whatever feels right to you. And in whatever rhythm, you know, whatever choice of words you choose. But you should keep the same ones because then it's a mantra-like effect, right? And it develops the samadhi, the one-pointedness on love, on loving thought. So it gets strong. Are they repeated over and over during the during meditation, or is it just saying it to yourself three or four times and then? No, it's saying it for about five or ten minutes, right? and then drop it. Then, but the effect on the mind will be there, right? The mind will be very much opened up, and then just go back to the mindfulness. Because that's what's going to develop wisdom, right? That's another way. Sometimes if you, if you want to direct it towards a, a particular person, you can do that also. But that should be included. There should also be the universal sending out, you know, to really open up to, to all beings. So you can combine them. Any other questions?
Okay. Lots of love. Spend the last five minutes or so generating loving thoughts. shift position and the shifting of position. Stay very mindful. <clears throat> when you do the when you do this metta meditation, this meditation on loving kindness, before the sitting, when you sit down, it sets up the mind, puts the mind in a very nice place for the practice of insight. When you end with it, the force of the loving thoughts are much stronger because you have already built up a certain strength of concentration, right? So when you're generating thoughts of love, there's a greater power in them. It also, it also puts the mind in a good relationship aspect to other people. So that when we get up from the sitting, if we have just done a few moments of sending out, may all beings be happy, it's a nice way of relating to people. So as we get up from the meditation, it, it puts us in a good place. You can do both. You can do it in the beginning and the end, or if you prefer one or the other, it doesn't matter. One other practice which is very nice and helpful, which is nice to do before, in the beginning of each sitting, often in the course of a day, we may have even knowingly or unknowingly hurt someone or offended someone or done something unwholesome or unskillful. So it's very nice when we sit down just to mentally ask forgiveness if we have hurt anyone in thought, in word, or in deed. And also to extend forgiveness if anyone may have hurt or offended us. So just when you sit down, either before the metta or after it, you can just mentally, mentally say, if I have hurt anyone or offended anyone in thought, word, or deed, I ask forgiveness. And I freely forgive anyone who may have offended me. It sort of clears the slate. You know, anything that, any negativities that may have arisen in the course of a day, you just sort of acknowledge the possibility of them and, and clean them from the mind, clear them from the mind. It's very nice. It just it makes the mind very light. Also, actually, it's interesting when you do metta as a specific meditation, not as the way we were doing it, but as a as a particular samadhi practice. You begin with yourself. Yeah. Are there any questions? There'll be classes next week. To give you an idea of how to keep these different practices in perspective. You know, it's very meritorious, very purifying to offer food or, or clothes, to offer a gift to someone. And the force of that purity is greatly increased if the person you're giving it to happens to be enlightened or very pure themselves. So a gift to the Buddha 
or and or many enlightened beings is a very highly meritorious act. It's very productive of of good fruit, good effect, good result. The Buddha said that cultivating loving thought for even a single moment is many times more fruitful, more purifying than if one had offered food and, and robes to the Buddha himself and the whole order of monks. So powerful is the generation of a single moment of true loving kindness. It's very powerful. Many times more powerful than the developing of loving kindness is for one instant, one moment, to experience the impermanence of all phenomena. To see how everything is arising and passing away. To experience that fully for one moment is many times more powerful than even the development of loving-kindness. Because the seeing of impermanence is the beginning of freedom. It's the beginning of getting off the wheel. Not only getting to a very high place, which is what happens in the development of metta, a very beautiful place, but in seeing impermanence, in developing insight, it's a taste of freedom. That's why in the practice, we should develop the thoughts of loving-kindness and send them out. But the main thrust of the practice should be in the development of this very penetrating awareness, penetrating insight into the nature of all phenomena, into the nature of the processes, because that's what leads to enlightenment. All these other wholesome states of mind which can be cultivated, like love and compassion and happiness in the joy of others, are all very, very useful in setting up the mind, in in softening the mind, in opening us up for the development of insight. But we we should understand that it's the wisdom which comes from from understanding the process that leads leads to understanding and freedom. Absolutely. It's a means to go beyond. Enlightenment is the, the going beyond of this mind-body process. And the way to that state beyond the mind and body is through the development of the understanding of the process. Right? That's why there's no, there should be no identification with wisdom. Oh, I'm so wise. You know, that's not the path anymore. Because wisdom itself is just another mental factor. It's impersonal, it's not self. It has a certain function. Its function is to bring the mind to a state of balance which can intuit nirvana, or, or the ending of the process. There's no place for attachment any, anywhere at all. Not to love, not to wisdom, not to mindfulness. To remain unattached to all these processes, but cultivating those which are going to take us beyond them. You know, they give the story of, you come to a river, and you want to cross to the other side. So you build, you build yourself a raft, okay? And you get all the wood and the rope, and you build the raft, and you use it, and you cross on the raft to the other side of the river. When you get to the other side, you don't carry the raft around on your head. 
it served its purpose, so you leave it there and go on. In the same way we don't, all of the things that we're cultivating are only a means to cross to the other shore, right? They're not carried, they're not carried beyond that. But you don't want to give up the raft in the middle of the river, you know. Okay, that, that very that very practice of asking for and and giving forgiveness is a way of weakening that. You know, weakening the, the hold of anger on the mind. It still may be there and it may come up in the meditation, in which case the anger itself should be made the object of the of the mindfulness. Really observing it without identifying with it, right? Without taking it to be self. But that practice of asking forgiveness and the loving kindness is a very great antidote to anger. You know? It's hard to be angry when you're when you're asking forgiveness. <laughs> I still have a fundamental difficulty in somehow going from thoughts to breathing like breathing to thoughts. I don't know how they have that. It's great. Um, I mean, there are many times when it doesn't seem to me that I'm giving full concentration to the thoughts that come by law. At the time of thinking, that's what, when the thought is there, you should be aware of the thought and not with the breath. Right? And then follow through to it, You will see that if you are mindful of the process, that is, thinking, 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 rather than involved in an analysis of content, you will see the thought come and go very quickly. Thoughts continue in the mind for a long time only when we get involved in them, right? As soon as we're mindful, you'll see it comes and goes, and then back to the breathing. is hard. It's a very subtle object and it's hard to be mindful of it. It's a good training, you know, to try and establish mindfulness on that state. If you find yourself losing, you know, that the sleepiness is really overpowering the mind, there are a few things to do. One is you can do some intentionally hard breathing, right? If the situation is appropriate and you really are feeling very, very drowsy, you can get up and do some of the walking meditation which stimulates the energy factor, you know. You can throw cold water on your face, and if nothing works, you go to sleep. You can't force the mind to be concentrated. All you can do is make the effort to stay mindful, 
right, of what it is that's happening. But everything that we're cultivating now is exactly to find that balance between making an effort and not not causing tension in the mind. Right? Well, shall I not then, if my mind wants to wander, shall I let it wander? No, if the, it's not to fight the thought process. You know, it's not to, not to think that thoughts are bad and shouldn't be there. If thoughts are coming merely to be aware that the mind is thinking, right? Don't struggle with trying to stand the breath and pushing the thoughts away. If thoughts are what's happening, be aware of the fact that you're thinking, right? And then when the thought disappears, again back to the breath. In other words, the effort is at mindfulness, not at having any particular object but rather whatever it is that comes to be mindful of it. I know that we mentioned in this class that phrase of Milarepa about hastening slowly. Right? That's that balance. You want to be really going forward very mindfully, very carefully. You want to be making an effort without forcing, without straining. There are no results to look for. There is nothing to look for because the whole, the whole aim is simply to be mindful moment to moment, not to have any particular state happen, right? Because all states are impermanent, so why look for any of them? Expectation is a big hindrance, and if the mind is expecting, that very expecting mind should be made the object of the meditation. Now look at it, expecting, expecting, or anticipating so as not to get caught up in it, not to identify with it, because it throws the mind off balance. Maybe the last question. I have, I'm aware that I'm thinking, a thought comes. As soon as I go thinking, thinking, the thought gets veiled behind the concentration on the process of thinking. And I'm wondering if the intent is to go through the thought, let it come up, recognize it, no, at the moment you're saying thinking, thinking, the thought is no longer there. Right. And so is that the goal to just let the take away the energy from my body? Right. Right, exactly. And not go into the thought and right. give it a full bloom and let it. Sometimes you'll find that if a thought has a lot of power behind it, even when you're saying thinking, thinking, you know, it goes on to the end. That's okay, if you're staying aware that, oh, the, the, the thinking process is going on, right? Sometimes when you become mindful of it, it disappears immediately. It depends on the, the push behind it. It doesn't matter. The idea is to stay mindful of whatever it is that happens. If it disappears, fine, back to the breathing. If it plays itself out, fine, if there's no involvement with it. Right? Not getting involved in the content, but just aware that, oh, thinking, thinking, all the way to the end. You can get enlightened in the middle of a thought. Just right in the middle, if the mind is perfectly balanced. So it's not that we're trying to do away with thoughts, but simply to be aware that that's what's happening. Speaking from a place of expectancy in my head, have you found in your own experience and the experience of those who you studied with in India that after a while, it sort of you just get the hang of it and as much effort as was at first entailed isn't entailed anymore? Oh, absolutely. When the mindfulness is developed,
it becomes effortless. It just starts working by itself, and all you do, you don't do anything. You just sit down, and automatically it's there. It's like when a very, a very great pianist, when he sits down to practice, he does not make an effort to play. It all happens because he has developed this proficiency, right? This, when the mindfulness is well cultivated, it's just there, it's working, and it goes on by itself. And it's best to have a teacher to work with, and if not, what's the best thing to do? In an intensive retreat, which is the best way to cultivate it quickly, it's helpful to have a teacher, because the mind has a tendency to get caught up in a lot of, in a lot of places. You know. Some people don't need it, you know, depending on your past background and your understanding. Generally, it's helpful. As far as a, a general practice is concerned of sitting a couple of hours a day, maybe, you can, you can do very well by yourself. If you don't deliberately practice mindfulness, will mindfulness occur anyway? Mindfulness only occurs if you're mindful. The more moments you're mindful, the more moments in the future mindfulness is liable to arise. Which is why all this is, is a practice in mindfulness. Right? It's practicing that state of mind. It does not drop down from heaven. But it does not mean that you can only develop mindfulness if you're sitting. You can develop, mindfulness can be developed on any object at any time. It means being aware of what's happening. Without identifying with it and without clinging and without condemning. Just being open and receptive, noticing each object as it comes. Where, where I was trying to understand is it seems that mindfulness would be a natural state of mind that, you know, after some things, some extra things are taken away, the mindfulness will occur. I mean, is that the case? Well, the extra things being taken away are only taken away through mindfulness. The extra things being greed, hatred, and delusion, which are big clouds in the mind. But we're very conditioned to that. We're very conditioned to clinging and condemning and being unaware. That's what we're bringing to the present moment, that kind of conditioning. To decondition the mind, to free the mind of those, of those negative forces, takes an effort to be mindful. Right? When they're gone, then mindfulness, then mindfulness is automatic. But mindfulness is the way to get rid of them, so it has to be cultivated. No, mindfulness means noticing the process of things, right? That's one kind of meditation. Another kind is the development of concentration, which means developing one-pointedness of mind. And they're two different factors. And very many meditation techniques involve this concentration. That is mantra and visualization or a light or a sound. So making the mind one-pointed on a single object. That leads to very high states of consciousness. It does not lead to insight into the process. It's mindfulness which leads to that moment-to-moment -moment understanding of what's happening. There are many different ways to develop mindfulness, many different techniques. But the, the technique is not what's important. It's the state of mind being developed.
shed in terms of thoughts, if you're thinking, you think thinking, and then you go back to the breathing. What if it's something like feeling? How far, how deep do you go? Do you think, well, anger and, or contentment, and then move on, or I mean, how far you, you, you go? You stay with, with, the rule is to be with what's predominant, as long as it's predominant, right? As long as the anger is the strongest thing happening. Be mindful of it. Anger, anger, anger. You know. If it's if it's a feeling or a th- whatever, whatever the mind is drawn to because of predominance, then we should be mindful. Everything is impermanent. So when the mindfulness is sharp, you're going to see that everything is just arising and vanishing, and then back to the breathing. After a while, it gets very rhythmic. Just automatically, the mind is drawn to all these different objects because they're strong, and the mindfulness is right with it. You know, it gets very flowing, very easy. But that takes a certain momentum of mindfulness to be built up, and that's what we're doing here. And that's the training, to, to increase the frequency of noticing. Right? So the frequency gets greater and greater, picking up more and more instantaneously what's happening, until it all starts happening by itself. they complement one another in the sense that you can use a highly concentrated mind to develop. Right. And then it's very easy. That people with high samadhi who then do insight, then practice insight, they don't have our struggles, you know, because the mind is so powerful. That but concentration by itself does not lead to wisdom. It has to be used. Right? Well, that's why the labeling in the beginning is helpful. That's why the labeling is helpful in the beginning. Because it gives you some distance. You know, if, you're, if you're making a mental note of thinking, thinking, or anger, anger, whatever, whatever it is, it aids the mindfulness, the non-identification. Right? When, that, when that mindfulness is strong, the labeling falls away. You don't need it. But in the beginning, it's a big help. Quietness is not in in the object, but in the mind, in the mind observing it. And what happens is you you experience much more. Uh, there's a flood of things happening, but with a silent mind, without any reaction. You're not clinging and you're not condemning. So it's just this river flowing by, but the mind is perfectly balanced. You become aware of many more things as the mind gets quiet. You know, there are many thoughts which are just whispers in the mind. Just, just hardly perceptible, which normally are well below our threshold of awareness. You know, as the mind gets quiet, those become very clear. And many things in the body also. But the mind stays balanced.
No, the label, the labeling is secondary. It's the mindfulness which is important. So don't. First, if you if you find it not helpful, there's no need. If you're staying mindful, right? If you're using the labeling, don't get too involved with finding exactly the precise word. Just sort of fits upon very general words, which which will fit most situations. For example, there are many kinds of thoughts. And for some people, it's useful to label precisely what kind of thought, such as remembering or planning or imagining or fantasizing or whatever. A particular kind of mind is very in tune with that kind of precision of labeling. It's not necessary, though. If you're just aware of thinking, thinking, it serves. Right? In the same way with bodily sensations. Fix upon just one or two general labels, because it's only an aid to keep the mind on the object, that's all. It's not. The concept is not important at all. Anything. The important thing is to experience fully what's happening. To experience the process, the arising and passing away. I don't understand exactly what happened. Well, um, I could hear everything going on, and everything just went on. There was no labeling. There was no. There was no words. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Right. Should I come back to think? No, no, no. The labels are not important. They're only if you are aware of what's happening, moment to moment, without identifying with it and without judging, just aware of sounds or thoughts or. I can't remember specific things because they just went in. Right, that, that's exactly what happens. It, it's a very quick flow, right? You just don't want to be daydreaming. You don't want things to be happening unaware. In other words, you don't want thoughts to be coming and maybe five minutes later remember, oh, I've been thinking all this time. All that period is a state of sleep. It's just like dreaming, you know? But the awareness is very silent. Yeah, and you can just, with a very silent mind, watch that flow. But I find that, I, that I'm aware of the going away. Once I become aware that I'm not on my breath, I think, oh, I've been thinking for Sometimes I'll be thinking about how long have I been thinking. And when I say thinking, it goes away. But I'm not aware of it happening from the beginning of it. When the mindfulness gets strong, it picks up the first syllable of the first word. Just, just as the thought arises. And sometimes you can feel the thought coming even before it arises. You can feel the movement of thought before it materializes. That's the kind of microscopic mindfulness that we're developing. Just instant to instant, that perfect clarity and luminosity of mind. To be, so that everything is very, very distinct. Just instant to instant to instant, the mind is silently and very clearly aware. But it takes practice. It does not, you know, it takes this cultivation. One shouldn't stifle the arising of 
there's no, it's choiceless awareness, right? Whatever comes, simply to notice it. Suzuki Roshi, in his book, had one very nice phrase, which pertains very, uh, very much to this practice. He said, the best way to control a cow is to give it a very large pasture. Let the mind do what it wants to do, but be mindful. That's all. Wherever it goes, it, it's thinking the thought is okay. It's with the pain, it's with an emotion. Whatever comes, simply to be aware of it. Insight is developed from seeing impermanence, from seeing the arising and vanishing of all phenomena. Everything is impermanent, so it does not matter what the object is. You can develop insight on thoughts, on sensations, on emotions, because all phenomena share this characteristic of impermanence. So all we have to do is be aware of it, and then the wisdom is growing. Depends on the person. Some, peop- some people it doesn't, some people it doesn't. People with very intellectual minds, generally in the course of practice, develop a good intellectual understanding. There are many people, especially in the East, the meditation centers, a lot of little old ladies come, really simple village people who, who've never studied anything, who don't know the theory, they come and the teacher tells them what to do and they do it and very quickly they get enlightened. You know, and they may not be able to express what happened at all. They may not have the conceptual framework to, to discuss it, but the experience is there and the purification is there. It can be if you get too involved with it. You know. Generally, Westerners we're very intellectually oriented and want, you know, want everything clearly understood by the mind. So there's a lot of questioning, a lot of doubting. In the period of practice, that can be a hindrance, unless you make that the object of the meditation, unless you can remain mindful of that process happening rather than getting caught up by it. Um, perhaps. Any other questions? Um, when you're being quote-unquote mindful, how does the breath fit in? I mean, because like, I'll be, you know, mindful and I'm away from my... No, that's okay. The breath is simply the primary object. In other words, when nothing much is happening. It's like your mantra Right, right. It's the, it's the central object. Except that in the breath, you can observe the process of rising and falling very clearly. In other words, it's more effective for the development of insight than a mantra. Because the breath is a very clear process, right? It's not, it's not one thing. So you can be aware of the whole process of breathing, the flow of sensations involved, right? It's the primary object in the sense that when nothing else is predominant, so the breathing is always there. Right? You can always be, be developing mindfulness and insight with the breath. 
Sometimes thoughts are not there and emotions are not strong and the body's not doing much. So the breathing. But when something else is happening, there's no need to cling to the breath. In other words, be with the flow of things, mindfully. But sometimes you may find that just to strengthen the mind, if you find the mind really scattered or... Then do, do the breathing as a concentration exercise. Spend a whole hour just on the breathing. You know, and it sharpens the mind again, so that it can be with the flow. What, what if you're having more than one thought at one time? Or, you know, well, obviously, but like this, yeah. just go in the mindful. The mind is very quick. You can be right. When it's developed, there's, there's a flood of things happening. You know, but the mind is just silent and just right with it. When you're picking up so many things, that's when the labeling begins to fall away, because there's no time, right? There's just too much happening. Any other questions? the same thing except that it's witnessing rather than the witness because there's no one being mindful. So it would be like the objects that are there are aware of their own presence? No. There's two things happening. There's knowing an object, right? There's a whole scheme. What's happening is a process of this knowing an object arising and passing away moment to moment. Along with this knowing or consciousness can be the mental factor of mindfulness, also arising and passing away. And neither the knowing nor the object nor the mindfulness is I or self, they're all processes. Give me a little mission of the course that we're going to teach next time. Is that you? Next session? Yeah. It's going to be the same practice talk. Hopefully, it's going to meet two or three hour sessions a week, mm -hmm. and it will tentatively be divided into something like an hour of talk, mm -hmm. an hour discussion, and an hour meditation. Mm -hmm. So, but it would be the discussion is not, uh, is on meditation and not history. Not history. Um, in the talks, I'm going to get more involved in the theory around it in a more systematic way. You know. And so the discussion can be either on the practice or on that. Is it going to be a read? Because yeah. I just signed up for a lady who made an outline. Uh, I'm saying right now. Is there a There were some suggested books down. Um, are you taking it for credit or not? Credit? No. Uh, the important thing is the experience. I want to know about the retreat. Um, will you be? I find it useful having you here, you know, rather than just going up myself. Are you going to be doing um, something like this during the retreat, or get together with a group? There'll be some like group talks, and also meeting individually. How um, do I? Like, I don't know now, I'll do that, but how can I get in touch with you later to find out about where or when or how to... About that particular about, one in yeah. California? 
you have to, I have nothing to do with the arranging of it at all. If you write to the guy, there. Oh, not the, not, not the one connecting with Trumpa. No. You, oh, this, oh, you're not going to be at the one in California, the Sequoias? Yes, that's the one I, that's not connected with Trumpa. Right, that's connected with you. Right. And you right. will be doing group things now and again, and individual work. You mean in that course? Yeah, the summer, yeah. the September 4th. Right. There will be maybe every other day a, a talk, uh -huh. and then every, hopefully every day meeting with everybody individually. Okay. For that, say like in two weeks or so, I might know when I could do that. How could I find out? You have to. It's posted on the board oh, with the name and address. Oh, I see. Uh, and you just have to contact him. There is a limit of 50. I have no idea how many have signed up. So I didn't know that. The last I saw said C. Joseph. Was there's a little thing underneath now. <laughs> okay. That's not going to be just sitting. Sitting and right everything. But sitting and walking is the primary activity. Will it be in songs? Yeah. It's not going to. There's not going to be an emphasis on discussion. You know, there, there'll be maybe a talk and a little discussion, but the thing is to practice. Yeah, there's enough. It's not, it's serious and intensive, meaning 17 or 18 hours a day, but that leaves six or seven hours to sleep, which is really plenty. You know, everything becomes very slow, so that you may take an hour or two just to eat your meal, or the meals, you know. Because the eating becomes part of the meditation. It just depends on your motivation. You know, the best way and the quickest way to develop mindfulness is in an intensive retreat. So if one is highly motivated to do it, then it's good. If the motivation is not strong, there's no way you know, to say. I didn't even know there were quiz sections. I just moved to Boulder like two weeks ago and I've been taking the class. And um, I hear there have been these sections like every week and I guess I've missed a whole lot. And I wanted to know like if I could set up an appointment with you or something. And I don't even know what questions I would ask. But I've just sort of started meditating and I am confused. Like you said something that just clarified something in terms of the difference between mantra and breathing. I was sitting in the park today meditating and I kept going from mantra to breathing to mantra and I didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground, you know, I didn't know. And it's sort of questions and stuff. And I thought On Wednesday, I meet with people individually. Oh, great. Okay. Between 9.30 and 11 and 3, 3 and 4.30. Should I set it up with you right now? No, you just, during those hours, just come. come in? Wait, let me write down your office and your name. And <laughs> I, this is a trip. I just came in. I thought there was meditation in here at 5 o'clock. Here you were, and I thought, wow, I'll listen to him, see what he's doing. And then he's got to do it the class. I This is the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita. What's your office? It's just the Gita office right down here. Oh, Gita office. Yeah. Yeah. Wednesdays, between 9.30 and 11, <laughs> and 3 and 4.30. Yeah.
much do you recommend meditating? I, you know, like I'll sit down and meditate for 20 minutes and I'm sick of it and I'm, it's time to go do something. I mean, should I discipline myself for an hour or two hours? I, it's good to build up to an hour. An hour at a sitting. Yeah. But, like, do it, like don't force it, but build up to it and it doesn't take long. If you, if you like, have, have that in mind. You know, so the first day is 20 minutes, and the next day is half an hour, and 45 minutes. In a week or 10 days, you'll be able to sit an hour easily. Do you recommend more than once a day, or just like... The, if you could do it twice a day. I'll start one. Okay, right. Yeah. If you, but it's good to do it every day. That's what's important. To, I was to, doing to, TM for a while, and I just got bored with it. You know, that I just, I did. This seems... You might, there's a book in the library, which explains the whole practice. So oh. it'll... Yeah. It's called Practical Insight Meditation. Practical what? Insight Meditation. And they have it here in the Neuropa Library. And I can it's short. check it out or read it? I, I think you have to read it here. Okay. It's short. It's not long. It's in two sections. One is called the basic practice and one is the progressive stages. You know, the stages don't you know, have to get involved with. The practice. But just the outline of the practice and so on. It's short and very clear and it'll clarify that for you. When I'm meditating at this stage, because I'm really a beginner, you know, should I do mantra meditation or No, breathing? you don't want to mix them. Like, oh. If you well, read the book, see, mantra develops one-pointedness, right? Mindfulness develops insight. Seeing moment to moment what's happening, not Read the book. We'll discuss it Wednesday. All right. Read the book before. All right. So you'll have some more days to Oh, I got plenty yeah. of time. It's, yeah, that's it's good very idea. short. Okay, because like I said, I just, you know, I was yeah. sitting in the park, mantra breathing, mantra yeah. breathing, and I'll read the book and yeah. I'll know more. Nice. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.